word of God from Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to its holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Altogether, the grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please remain standing. Father, we, um, we give ourselves to you in, this, uh, in these moments, and we ask uh, that those beautiful ancient words would um, land on uh, fertile soil in our hearts, that we would know you and love you and care for your world and care for our neighbors well. Would you strengthen us by your spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Denver Prez. I'm Ronnie. So if you're new, we're, we're in the middle of a sermon series on this ancient letter that was written to the Ephesians. And, uh, you know, each week we've been talking about, like, how relevant these ancient words are for, like, modern people living in Denver. And, uh, and the reason is that, is that the, uh, the, the ancient original audience... Uh, it was made up of these Gentile believers who were in these new churches living in a city that made it really difficult to stay the course. Uh, they were living in a context that made it really easy to just hit the pause button on their faith. And they called themselves Christians, but they were tempted to live in such a way that their faith made no difference in their lives. Does that sound familiar? Now, you know, some people might say, hey, Garcia, take it easy on them, would you? Don't throw them under the bus. Uh, what's the big deal? Give them a break. Um, they can be good people without being religious zealots. And that's right. You know, I, I, hear, what you, I hear what you're saying. Um, but it kind of misses the point because it, it alerts me to the fact that you might not understand What's at stake? And this is where my pastoral intuitions kind of come out. It turns out that casual cultural Christianity turns out to be a really big gimmick once 
the heat is turned up in our life. Have you, um, have you ever held a lifeless baby in your arms? Have you, uh, have you ever uh, had a spouse tell you that they have stage four cancer? Have you um, ever had to look at your young child and say, hey, uh, we have to move because daddy lost his job and we can't pay the rent? Uh, have you ever received news that's so painful, so disappointing, that becomes like, spiritually disorienting? I mean, have, you, have you ever received news that's so difficult that you're tempted uh, to become cynical about God because you just don't know what the future holds? That is where the Ephesians found themselves. That's where they found themselves. See, earlier they had received the news that Paul, this man that they love, uh, was needlessly put in jail for their faith, and he's on a death row, right? They were discouraged. You know, you know, I could imagine them saying something like, you know, if God is real, why is this happening? Isn't Paul just a good guy trying to obey Jesus, and this is how God rewards him? You know, I think Paul anticipates that response because in his letter to them, in chapter 3, this passage we just heard, he makes this short digression to address their hearts. That, that's what our passage is today. Paul knows that a robust trust in the gospel has the power to transform our experience of human suffering and disappointment. The gospel, when it's coursing through our veins, has the power to reinterpret pain so that we don't lose heart and grow weary and cynical in the face of disappointment. So how, how, how does Paul help us to see this? Well, the primary way that he's going to combat this kind of spiritual cynicism is by showing us that casual Christianity will only hurt you. Our experience of human suffering has this correlation with how casual or how fervent we feel about our commitment to Jesus. So how does he do it? Paul this morning in this digression is going to do it autobiographically. Paul is going to describe to us, the readers, his fundamental identity and then his primary purpose. So you note takers, that's just a two-point ser uh, sermon, his fundamental identity and his primary purpose. And seeing those two things, we're going to learn these kind of ingredients for persevering uh, in really hard times that you might be in right now. But if you're not in it right now, it'll come. That day will come. So uh, let's start with the first one, this identity, the who. In preparing for this sermon, I came across this uh, terrific quote by uh, an Orthodox theologian. His name is Alexander Shmimon. Uh, some of you guys know that name because you're theology nerds. He's really thoughtful. Uh, he says this. He says, tell me what you celebrate and I will tell you who you are. Let that sink in. Tell me what, where, where your focus goes, and I will tell you who you are. I, as I thought about it, like it started to sink in. 
Uh, it, it, it made me think of this other story in Luke chapter 7. It's like this haunting, beautiful account. So this nameless woman, we don't know her name, we just know that she's a sinner. That's how she's described. She bursts into this party with a bunch of guys, and she just falls at the feet of Jesus. And then she wets his feet with her tears, and then she dries his feet with her hair. And then she takes this really expensive anointing oil, and she just blesses and dumps it on his feet. Like, would you ever do that? Or maybe I should ask, why did she do that? I mean, what did she understand about herself that, like, led her to unashamedly just crash this party, fall at the feet of Jesus, and wash them with her tears? Like, what was in her? Let me answer that question by kind of illustrating an answer for us. Um, This is kind of an illustration we were talking about in membership class this past week. Imagine, um, Imagine you had a child who was sick with a really strange and rare heart disease. And the doctors tell you that your child only has weeks to live unless uh, he receives a match for a heart transplant, right? And so um, you search all the databases nationwide, and uh, you only find one match. And it's my son, Micah. Sorry, buddy, you're going to die in this illustration. Uh, It's Micah. And so uh, Micah comes to me and he says, "Um, Dad, I know the consequences. I've um, prayed about it. Um, I I was made for this. I want to donate my heart, right? One heart for another. One life for another. And so we go through with it. And your son lives and my son dies. Now, if that were to happen... How would that change your self-understanding as it relates to me? I mean, wouldn't, it, wouldn't there be gratefulness, a kind of indebtedness? See, humble and lavish and even vulnerable expressions of loving relationship, like wetting Jesus' feet with your tears, would start to make sense in that context, wouldn't it? That's how the Apostle Paul sees himself. That's how he identifies himself. Look there right away in verse 1. Paul says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now when he says that, there's kind of multiple meanings going on. Because of his faith in Christ and his commitment to obeying Jesus, the Apostle Paul was put in jail, right? Paul was a prisoner of the emperor Nero right? Officially, he's in a Roman jail. But what Paul does is he reframes this and says, yeah, in reality, I am a prisoner of the Lord. I am yielded to him. Before Paul was ever thrown in a jail cell, Paul was a prisoner of the Lord. And so he gave up the right to live a self-directed life. He gave up his autonomy He gave his life to Christ. He says, I am crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. Paul says, I have given my life to the cause of Christ. And so even when I become an actual prisoner of Nero, I'm not shaken. That's what Paul's saying. 
He always belonged to the Lord. That's how, he, that's how Paul understands himself, you see. But it's more than that, actually. As Paul is describing this mission that God has called him to, he says in verse 8, look there, that, that this was given to me. He says, though I am the very least of all the saints. The very least. This is a guy who wrote most of your New Testament. So Paul's self-understanding is incredibly humble, right? There's this, and this is actually a theme in his life. Um, if you are new to the Bible, let me just catch you up on a little background history. Uh, so Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his former life, was a highly trained, esteemed Jewish leader who was so fervent in his faith, he used to persecute and hunt down Christians, Right? Like, I can literally imagine the Apostle Paul arriving to heaven and then seeing Stephen, the martyr from Acts, and saying, oh, awkward about that. Really sorry about the stones. I'm sorry that I killed you. Uh, So Paul has blood on his hands, you know? So Paul saw himself as the least deserving person of God's grace. See, he doesn't look at God and say, hey, God, look here, look here, God. I have been this really zealous missionary for you. Why in the world am I in jail? Like, he didn't do that. Paul doesn't see himself as somehow deserving God's grace so that when difficult circumstances come, he, he never has this impulse towards cynicism, right? His fundamental identity is what transformed this experience of suffering and disappointment, you see. But how about you? Are you a prisoner of the Lord? Are you fully yielded to Jesus? Does God's word ever tell you to do something and you say, hey, God, stay in your lane. You can talk to me about uh, theology and doctrine. That's fine. Don't tell me what to do with my marriage. Don't, hey, God, don't tell me what to do with my money. Stay in your lane. Don't tell me what to do with my sexual life. Stay in your lane. So that's casual Christianity, right? Do you, maybe I should put it like this, do you see yourself as somehow deserving a different life than the one you have right now? Or, if you're really pleased about it, your life, do you ever see yourself as deserving of the life you do have? Like if it were all taken away, would you grow angry because you secretly believe that you earned all of this instead of it all just being a gift from God? You know when, um, when Facebook first came out 16 or 17 or 18 years ago, I don't even remember now, um, I remember that Facebook made me really uncomfortable, like anxious. Um, Because what it was is Facebook represented to me reconnecting with all of my friends from high school, and they're going to find out that I'm a pastor. Uh, Like, listen, I'm sad about it, but I was really self-absorbed in high school, and now all my former classmates who had front row seats to my character are going to say, Ronnie's a pastor? Like, really low bar over there in Denver. And so I have, like, these deep feelings of, like, I am the least of all the pastors. 
You're like, I don't deserve to be your pastor. I don't, I don't deserve this amazing wife that I have. I don't deserve any of this, right? You know what I deserve is disappointment. That's what I deserve. But God, man, he just pours out his grace. And I receive it. And, and, and Paul emphasizes this, right? Look at verse 2. Speaking of God's grace, he says, it was given to me. And then he, he says it again. Look at verse 7. Speaking of the gift of God's grace, he says, which was given to me. He repeats it. Now, in Paul's day, in the first century, his people, the Jews, they were really presumptuous about God's grace. Jews did not appreciate God's grace. They, they, were, they were simply culturally Jewish, right? They didn't personally appropriate that grace for themselves. And so it didn't impact their identity and self-understanding. Listen, your faith cannot be your culture. This is a recipe for cultural Christianity that has no power to protect you when life turns up the heat. Paul revisits this identity as a prisoner with this deep humility, and it fortifies him to accept God's severe will, death row even, in just any circumstance, really. See, our circumstances are what God principally uses to kind of shore up where we are with him, right? Like, when, when everything's good, when everything's good, we all kind of look the same. But when hard times come, then you can really start seeing what your functional God is, right? Like, Paul, through his fundamental identity. That is, he, he's, a, he's a man who's just dumbstruck with all that God has done for him. That identity helps him to fully surrender to God's plans, even if those plans meant deep, deep loss. That's what the Lord wants for you. A deeper identity, a primary identity in him. You see that? All right, let's, well, let's shift gears. Let's go to the why or the purpose. So in this text this morning, he doesn't only give us an identity that fortifies Paul, but, it, but he also, God gives him a purpose, a mission. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I like all of these like Marvel and DC movies. It's pretty lowbrow. I know, like, I know I'm the pastor of Denver Prez. You're like, I only like Wes Anderson, sophisticated movies. I'm not that. I'm pretty blue collar. I'm just like a dumb movie. Uh, you know, um, the kind of the end of this Marvel sort of season had these two movies. There was like uh, Avengers Infinity Wars and then Avengers Endgame. Uh, what was interesting about these two movies is that all the different superheroes from all the different individual movies all meet each other. That's kind of a cool. And so there's this one scene where a character, his name's Peter Quill, also known as Star-Lord, kind of a dumb name. He's having a standoff with Iron Man, right? And so he asks, where is Gamora? And that's like his love interest, right? And Iron Man retorts. He's like, I'll do you one better. Who is Gamora? And then there's this third character. His name's Drax. He's kind of friends with Gamora. And his, like, social radar is, like, broken. And he says, I will do you one better. Why is Gamora? 
the scene is like super funny because Drax is a meathead and he's making like these philosophical questions like why is Gamora? It doesn't suit him. Well, it doesn't suit uh, me either, but that's the implication of what Paul is getting at. He's asking the question, why am I? Why is Paul, right? Why is he here? What's, what's my purpose? What's, what's my mission, right? And Paul has a crystal clear answer to that question. Look at, look at me uh, with me at verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, when you read this, you can perser- per- perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. All right, well, that requires a little bit of explanation. Okay, again, if you're kind of new to the Bible, um, let me see if I can not unpack this quickly. Uh, when you think of the Bible, I want you to think of it as one unified story, right? So religious books from other religions are, are really quite disconnected. They kind of read like an encyclopedia of laws and rules and things like that, but the Bible doesn't work like that at all. The Bible is actually just telling one story. And in that divine story, God sets out to save the whole world and put everything in right relationship with him, right? To restore all things. And he does so by choosing for himself this rescue team. And that rescue team in the Old Testament is called Israel, the nation of Israel. And so salvation for the world, for all the nations, comes through Israel. Now, the nations, or these Gentiles, were always a part of the plan of God's story, but they had to go through Israel. And so Israel saw themselves as a sort of mediator between God and the world, okay? Now, just as an aside here, uh, Israel does a terrible job as a rescue team. They become extremely racist, uh, and so the, there is incredible racial tension between Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. So now, in the, in, where we find ourselves in the New Testament, all people, not only the Jews, now have direct access to God through Christ, and that is what this mystery is. Look at, look at verse 6. He's, Paul is real explicit. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So as history progressed and unfolded, the next chapter of the divine history included this this mysterious union between Jews and Gentiles. Now, not to our politically correct modern ears, but but that verse 6 is like revolutionary. And, it, and that message was uniquely given to Paul to preach. In verse 3, Paul says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, what's Paul talking about? So earlier, again, backstory. Paul, before he was a Christian, he's on the road to Damascus. Fervent Jew. He's going to persecute a bunch of Christians. And on his way, the resurrected Jesus appears to him. And it stops him dead in his tracks. And he says, Paul, why why in the world are you persecuting me? And then Jesus gives Paul a new mission and a new purpose and a new calling to proclaim this mystery. That was, verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles. Verse 9 clarifies to bring light 
for everyone what is the plan that was hidden, right, in the earlier chapters of history, of divine history. Now, all right, a lot of history here, so continue following me. So Paul characterizes his mission as, verse 2, a stewardship of God's grace. Now, do you know what a steward is? A steward is a person who is given someone else's assets and is in charge of taking care of them, right? So as a steward, you are in possession of something, but it's not for you. You see that? That's what a steward is. You're just this dispenser. You are a holding dock. Things are supposed to flow through you, right? Y'all see how that works? This is Paul's calling. He is a steward. So every time he brings light, every time he preaches, what is it that is flowing through him? He is preaching, verse 8 again, the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does that mean? It means that there is never an end point to the riches of the Lord. They can never be exhausted. This is the message that's like flowing through Paul that unites people who historically hate each other and brings them together. This is like, like maskers and anti-vaxxers times 10. Like loving it out. What does this mean for us? It means that in the same way that the riches of Christ are flowing through Paul, they must also flow through us. And he's actually explicit on this point, you guys. Look at verses 10 and 11. He makes it explicit. He says, so that through the church, that's us, read yourself in there, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church, that's you guys, that's you, has become the collective steward of God's grace. That is to say, when we accept this mission, when we accept this purpose together, we can literally change world. In fact, instead of becoming cynical by all of our, cynic, our, our suffering and our disappointment, it's actually our joyful unity and the way that we actually just care for each other, it testifies to the entire world the reality and the truth of the gospel. Um, Elie Wiesel, uh, a Jewish Holocaust survival, he's, um, you might know that name. He, uh, he's known for his memoirs that he wrote in the concentration sh- camps, uh, specifically in Auschwitz. If you ever read these memoirs, I'm some, some of you, we, I had to read it in high school. I'm sure some of you know this. But one of the most striking things that he records uh, is what he writes about Christians. So I don't know if you know this, but Christians were also put in concentration camps. And Elie Wiesel writes about them. And he says, while many Jews were becoming cynical and despairing, Wiesel talks about how Christians, listen to this, would march triumphantly 
to the gas chambers singing hymns. That's what Ellie Wiesel says about Christians. These Christians are essentially saying, you can take away my life, but you're just setting me free to see the person I love the most. You cannot take away the most important thing in my life. Those are unsearchable riches, family. Sometimes lesser riches, uh, excuse me, lesser riches in our life kind of go to the top of the list. And those riches do, they are exhaustible. They do have an end point. And when those worldly riches are at the top of our list, and then when they're taken away, because everything will be taken away, we're susceptible to cynicism and deconstructing, right? That's why we bind ourselves to the church to collectively remember the unsearchable riches and as a community become a steward of this grace. I read this in one of those like Pew Research whatever things, but they find that 81% of Christians report that you can live a full Christian life without physically being part of a church. That would have made no sense to Paul. Jesus himself binds himself to the church. He calls us his bride. And as his bride, we give ourselves fully to him. And and we testify to these unsearchable riches. And we allow this grace to flow through us. And we absorb the the suffering and the disappointments of one another. And we, and we, we wear them and absorb them together. That's our mission. That's our purpose, as it was for Paul, too. Okay, let me just quickly, quickly conclude. So I began by saying that um, Paul writes this section in chapter 3 as a digression in his letter, right? He knows that people are suffering. He cares about them. He doesn't want them to grow cynical. And so he says in verse 13, look at that. It's the very last verse in our section. He says, so I ask you, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul desires to transform their experience of disappointment by illustrating in his own life the power of a fundamental identity in Christ and the power of having this clear mission, this calling. But don't you think it's a really kind of a curious thing that he says in verse 13 that he suffers for them and that it is their glory? I have no idea where my last page of notes are. And this will be important because you want to hear how this ends. Um, what does that even mean? Like, what does that mean? It's your glory. My suffering is your glory. What does that mean? Because theologians, uh, I thought that only the suffering of Jesus could do anything for us. How is our suffering for one another glory for one another? And that's true. It's true that the suffering of Jesus does something for us in the realm of salvation. But that's not what Paul is saying. And here's what this means. 
when you are obedient or when you make sacrifices, when following Jesus hurts a little bit, or when you um, are joyful in gut-wrenching circumstances, in that moment, you are creating a legacy of glory in the people that you love the most. Now listen, when you are a jerk or selfish you're creating a legacy of emotional and spiritual impoverishment too. You're creating a legacy one way or the other. But every sacrificial step of obedience for Jesus is never meaningless. Now listen, this is not a plea to just try to make Jesus happy by being a good boy and girl. That's not what I'm saying. Right? What I'm trying to say, this is about living a big life, a purposeful life. Because it matters in the lives of the people we love the most. Every statistic shows that lukewarm, a lukewarm relationship with Jesus in this generation results in almost outright denial in the next, in rebellion. Like the next generation tends to be an exaggerated form of what we are. Our lives matter, and it is for the glory of those who we love the most. When Jesus died on a cross, it was for you. But listen, did you know that when Jesus lived and obeyed, it was also for you? All true love costs. If there's no cost in following Jesus, then there's no love, because love is costly. Jesus knows that it's costly, and he paid every cost on the cross so that you would have no doubt that you're absolutely treasured and loved by the God of this universe. Can you live in that love? Can you make it your fundamental core identity? Can you make his love your self-understanding and your purpose? so that it flows through you. If you do, you will be spiritually buoyant on the day of heartbreak and disappointment. God wants to transform your, your experience of human suffering and disappointment through Christ. Paul's writing about it, and Jesus is accomplishing it. Amen? Amen.